Father, you not only design this church through Jesus Christ, you also love it. Help us to love it. And help us to contribute to it. And help us to see its building. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us a real sense of direction, each one of us, how we can glorify you through better contribution to this body. And uh, show us if there's areas in which we need to improve. We need to contribute more and commit more. And uh, Bless us this morning to look at this picture. Help us to uh, sense your leading and hear your voice. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I look across the conservative landscape of the day, I wonder, is this what Jesus had in mind 2,000 years ago when he established it? What was once a... uh, Basically, one Mennonite church a number of years ago has splintered into probably hundreds of groups. I uh, spoke to a friend from Ontario that said he did a little search checking, and within a 10-mile radius of his house, there's about 40 different conservative-type groups or churches 10 miles away. Can you imagine? It's hard for us here in Gladys to imagine that, but uh, some places like that. I was there for a little bit, and on Sunday morning, buggies were passing each other, cars were passing each other, all these people going to their different groups, these different ways, and I wonder, uh, is that what God had in mind? I'm concerned about my church up in Floyd this morning. We've experienced some growth in the last couple of years. Whenever there's a quick influx of people, how to homogenize and how to, uh, to pull together. I'm concerned about your church because uh, sometimes the initial beginnings of a church is easier than the long haul. It's easier in the beginning stages to be excited and to do what needs to be done. But after years and years, same people, uh, it takes a little more work to maintain the purpose and maintain the unity. Uh, I guess older churches tend to be like older buildings. They require some maintenance that maybe newer ones don't. There's some cracks in the foundations and there's some water issues and there's some maintenance that needs to happen. And... uh, But if churches are like marriages, everybody's excited about a new marriage. The older ones don't get much attention. But a marriage that's been together for a long, long time means that somewhere they've been doing something right. And for a church like this to have existed here for how long is it? 60, 70 years? uh, Something right has been done. The fact that we're still here and still serving and still uh, loving each other. But the same thing that keeps marriages together, keep churches together, the same humility, the same commitment, and the same uh, transparency and love. Now, the other evening, we talked about the world's current and how the world's current around us tends to influence the church in a certain direction. And uh, I appreciate our positions. I think positions are worth maintaining. And I think there are times to, uh, to review that and to decide where we stand But often the tendency that we have, our churches have, when we see this pushing influence is to drive stakes deeper and build walls higher and and make the agreements more solid. And and there are times to do that. But I have a concern with that, that that's not always the main problem. The the walls around, the, the, uh, the structure and the discipline isn't always the issue. Sometimes, even within well-drawn lines, And among high standards, in spite of long-held positions, inside these things, their brotherhood can be crumbling and falling apart. I knew a young man who uh, left a pretty conservative church, and the church wouldn't say so, but they almost had the concept they're the only ones that are probably right. And he was now grappling, now away from home, how can he straighten out his life and, and serve the Lord in a different congregation? So he went back and asked, what could I do to make things right? And they said, well, the only way is to come back and submit here and be part of our church. Uh, some other of his families left, and when they asked what they could do, they basically, well, he had a couple of options. He can go live with some ungodly friend somewhere or go to this other church his brother was at. And they told him, well, it doesn't really matter either place. He'll be just as lost. Uh, and then more left, and more left. There's another group recently that has a, they're walking back the standard. They're pushing it backwards, more and more tight, more and more controlled. And the families are leaving by the dozens in that group. And uh, some visited us. And it's true, the standards aren't slipping. The positions aren't changing. They're not being washed downstream. But inside those, that's, that's 
structure, the brotherhood is falling apart. And uh, I don't understand all the reasons for that. Somehow, sometimes there's a generational disconnect where the older people aren't passing on a vision to the next generation. And there's not that generational unity. Sometimes there's a greater distance there should be between ministry and laity. Sometimes struggling people are looked at as church problems, not projects. Uh, people try to find help in their own groups and can't find it there. They tend to put a veneer up or else tend to go somewhere else to look for it. A church that's not a place of fellowship turns into a place of fear and tension. I talked to one family recently and they told me that this church they're going to now is the first time in years they've gone to church and enjoyed it. Can you imagine going to church for years and being afraid and being tense every time you go? The first time they can worship at a place, they feel welcome and they enjoy it, coming together. I believe we need to hold a position, but if we lose our sense of brotherhood, we've lost the church. And there's no perfect church. It's easy to look at other churches and think they're doing better than me and ours, and it's easy to be dissatisfied sometimes with ours, but what I want to talk about this morning is not to, to uh, hold up a, a standard that makes us dissatisfied with what we have, but instead increase our love for our brotherhood and to embrace it and build it and not, not disengage from it. This term brotherhood is used quite freely today and uh, sort of a feel-good, inclusive kind of a term. And uh, It's alliance, it's a fellowship, it's a group of people that think the same way. And you have the Muslim Brotherhood, people committed to a common cause. You have the, the Mormon or the Masonic Brotherhood, uh, joined by a common commitment. How does Christian Brotherhood differ than that? There's a scripture in Matthew 12, I'm going to look at briefly to answer that question. Matthew 12, verse 46. And while he talked, to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answering, answered and said unto them that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. His sisters came and his mother came and made some brothers. They thought they had special access going and getting ahead of the line there to talk to Jesus. Jesus made something very clear. My family and my relationships are built around the kingdom of God. It's built on the ones that have a relationship with God. And that's how, who I consider my family, my brethren. Now many are offended at that. Many think these are very narrow parameters. If the only brethren we can... Consider, brethren, are those that also do the will of God, as well as they know. I was, uh, I forget what I had said that evening, something that about being the children of God and uh, relationships and so on. And afterwards, a visitor told me, uh, we're all part of the family of God, and I won't be coming back. I made some statement about this. And, uh, so uh, he was sort of offended by the narrow parameters there. But think of what this means. If the Son of God is calling us who were fallen humans His brothers and sisters. That's, that's huge. That's large. The kingdom was come. Wherever God's laws are obeyed, and His kingdom was expanding. This belonging, this acceptance grows. And we belong to this family. Hebrews even goes so far as to say, for both He that's sanctified and they who are sanctified are all of one. For each cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hesitate to take the time, but in Ephesians 2, verse 13, uh, Jesus points out how his kingdom, his church, is built and put together. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof, he came and preached peace to you that were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, 
There's a lot in that. But this is what Jesus is doing to make a church possible. And it says here that Jesus is doing two things. Uh, and the first thing is we're, we're all aware of, Jesus is the mediator, the one between God and man that can bring us into a restored relationship with Him. And every time a person finds, finds the Lord, it's because Jesus is doing the drawing. And Jesus is doing the bridging of the gap, bringing people close. The forgiveness was won there, and He restores His relationship. And every time a man finds the Lord, Jesus did it. And some people say this is the only relationship that matters. As long as I, with Christ, am okay, that solves the picture. But there's something else going on here. There's some on this side and some over this way. And it says that he is breaking down the middle wall of partition to take these two distant people and bring them together and make them one. And sin not only divides God from man, it divides man from man. There's broken relationships and deep hurts and problems between people groups and families and individuals. Because sin does that. Offense does that. But where's Jesus in that picture? Again, it says He's in the middle. He's restoring this way and bringing people together that were once far apart. And I believe that the church can't be the church without this dimension. Uh, man with man and you with me and that's the second relationship that forms the church. There's two of them. This one, and then this one. And Jesus is doing both at the same time. When He's finished, we have a church. Brotherhood is a triangle. I have two brothers here this morning, I think. Uh, Gabriel is my brother, and John is my brother. Therefore, logic would say there's something also between John and Gabriel, because brotherhood is a triangle. When I have a relationship with Christ, and He calls me a brother, and you have a relationship with Christ, then what does that do between you and me? That's the church. That's how it's brought together. And that's the distinction of a Christian brotherhood. It's not just about you and me. It's not just about seeing things the same way. It's a three-legged triangle. It's a three-dimensional relationship. And Christian brotherhood is, is this one and this one. The horizontal and the vertical together. Now in Scripture, there are several pictures of what the church is supposed to look like. And each one emphasizes something specific about how the brotherhood operates. And we already saw one this morning, one picture of the church that emphasizes the personal relationship. Uh, Sonny read it in the devotional. And I'm not going to go back and read that again. You already heard it. But if you get a picture here of a grapevine, and Gerald just planted some, and right now they're at his house, about a dozen plants with one or two long spindly vines coming out. But you wait five years, what's that going to look like? That whole uh, cable will be hung full of of an intertwisted, tangled mass of vines and branches and fruit and leaves. And it's a beautiful thing if you like grapes. And that's what Jesus was thinking about when He gave this example. And I believe this one especially, uh, it's geared toward individual relationship. And I believe the foundation to a strong church is strong individuals. If you want a spiritual church, you have to start with spiritual individuals. You can't minimize that. But there's brotherhood happening there too, if you think about it. In this picture of the grapevine and the branches, there's a brotherhood pictured as well. Now notice the things that are happening in that passage without reading, if you can just remember back. There's some branch removal going on. And uh, dead ones are clipped away. Ones that are not bearing fruit are clipped away. And uh, there's amputation going on. That's an individual work. God is doing something in an individual. But the brotherhood question is, if God is doing that in that person, how does that affect me as a brother? Am I indifferent to that? Do I not care about that? Do I have any sense of concern and responsibility? Or does it not matter at all? That's a brotherhood question. There's branch trimming, trimming going on. Even living branches that are bearing fruit get clipped. And there's a cutting off and removing of unnecessary structure. Maybe you know what that feels like. You had dreams that were just beginning to take shape, and here comes the clippers and snip, and it's on the ground, it's shattered. Or something you've built up and poured energy into, and overnight it's just gone. 
Maybe the ministry you had was taken or the, the thing that you did was not accepted or so many things. What looked to you like good growth was clipped off and is lying on the ground is useless. And if you've had that experience, you feel lost. It feels helpless. It feels hurtful and confusing. Now, realize in this picture that God has a personal agenda for each person's life. I believe God knows how to make Dan bear fruit. And he's working in Dan's life and he's clipping things so that he could bring forth more fruit. That's a personal interaction between the Lord and him. How I respond to pruning is a question of personal submission to God, but how I respond to your pruning is a question of brotherhood. There's abiding going on, fruit bearing, and answered prayer happening. And fruit is a very personal matter. You get that through a relationship. Nobody else can do that for you. And you can only find it without a relationship with the vine. But in the brotherhood, and maybe some understand this better than others, but you might have experienced it. How do you feel when the fruit on your vine is small and green and not very advanced, and other people seem like they're just so loaded with beautiful things? And they're serving and they're blessing and they're helping. You just can't seem to get anywhere and get anything done. And, and uh, how do you feel about that? How do you feel when you've just been pruned and everybody else seems to be growing unchecked? Or how do you feel when you are loaded with fruit and somebody else is struggling? Those are the brotherhood questions. How we respond to how God is working other people's lives in relation to my own. That passage is about God's sovereignty in an individual's life. But in the context, is how we respond to each other in that brotherhood concept. I'd like to take you to 1 Corinthians 12. Here's another picture of how the body works. I'm not going to read this whole passage because it's a long one. I'm going to pick out a few key verses. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. And then verse 18, you know this passage. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And then verse 22, nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble or necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. And it says there should be no schism in the body. All the members should have the same care one for another. Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. There are several things that we could point out in this passage. We could read it more in depth. But there's many disconnected parts here becoming one unit. And this relationship with God has been taken care of and now this relationship with each other is being built together. And uh, the other thing that I find significant here is that God is placing members. Uh, if you're discontent with your role, get used to it because God places members where He wants them. If, uh, if you wish so-and-so would just go on down the road and find his other church down there because he's not an easy brother, get used to it because God placed him here. And... Uh, God does that. Whenever God builds bodies, eyes go above noses, ears go beside the head, the hair goes on top. And He has a plan in mind for how this thing's supposed to look. And when He builds a brotherhood, I believe He puts into it the same forethought and the same uh, design that goes into this spiritual body. And we need each other. This is very obvious in this passage. Our need for Christ is so obvious in, in John 15. It says, without Him we can do nothing. But here we need each other too. We're not designed to be independent. Uh, we're not designed to live the Christian life alone. And the brotherhood is designed to have the same care one for another that we would have for ourselves. And it's one thing if the eye would say to the ear, as it says in this passage, I don't need you. I don't know which you would rather lose, your hearing or your sight. Uh, if I could choose, I'd, if I had to, maybe lose one of both, but not one. Not all of either. Uh, but it's one thing for the ear to say, I'm more important than you. But it also says, not even the head says to the foot, 
I have no need of you. Now if the head is Christ, and the foot is the lowliest member in the body, and not even Jesus says to the lowest, most immature beginner in the Christian life, I don't really need you, you can go on somewhere else. How much less should we have the attitude toward other people that I really wish you weren't in my life? You don't really fit. It's good to help other people. It's good to serve other people. Sometimes I wonder if it's more spiritual to say, I need you, than to say, how can I help you? We need to do both. But in the body, both are important. We care for each other. Indifference in the brotherhood dissolves those bonds. Uh, a brotherhood is not built on indifference. It can't work that way. It's not built on superiority. Superiority causes gaps and chasms between people. But so does inferiority. Inferiority tends to make people back up and say, I don't really fit. I don't really belong. I'd rather just stay in my own corner and be back here out of sight. Both are detractive from the brotherhood. The same care one for another. And we're designed to build together. I'd like to look at one verse at least in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is another passage about, about this body and how the church functions. It says he gave some apostles and prophets to perfect the saints and for the work of the ministry. And by looking at that, it would almost seem that God, if, if you're not a prophet or a teacher or a pastor, you don't contribute. But that's not the case. The goal is unity. It's perfection. It's, it's being solid. And I believe the goal that we see in this passage is not that I could become a spiritual giant is that the brotherhood together could grow. It's not that I could be this you know, extra special person growing in the Lord. It's that all together we can contribute. And tethered together we grow together. That's how it looks. But look at verse 16 of Ephesians 4. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So from whom is from Christ. The body is fitted together in a, a very unique way. And how does the growth happen? It says the growth, it says it makes increase of itself through that which every joint is supplying. Now, uh, it talks about contributing grace here. Through that which every joint supplieth. Uh, Edifying itself in love. Not I look at it this way. Grace is a personal thing. I receive it as I walk with the Lord. And I, uh, as I'm close to Him, He pours grace into my life. But as I relate to you, and as we communicate and we share, that unit, that, that grace builds a connection. It builds a unity there. And that's how the whole church becomes cemented together. It's not through isolation. It's through investment in each other. A well-functioning body requires input from each person. And uh, it grows. And it grows in two ways. The church can grow this way uh, in numbers. It can grow this way in maturity. And uh, different personalities are geared differently. Some people just love meeting neighbors and talking to the lost and evangelizing. And other people love to mentor and to write notes of encouragement and to contribute in the body itself. And both are necessary. Those are both gifts that God used to build up His kingdom. But how does the growth happen? It says it grows according to the effectual working in the measure of each part. What that says to me is simple. That if, if only the ministry and a church are contributing, that church will grow at a snail's pace. If half the membership is contributing that means the church can grow at half speed. If everyone is committed and everyone is contributing and, and, and committed, that's a church that can grow like it ought to grow. And this thing grows each one invests of his own life. And no one does everything, but no one does nothing. And we contribute together and that's how it grows. And then there's a picture of the, the stone building and that's in 1 Peter 2.5. 
we won't spend time on that one, I guess. But there's a there's a a foundation stone. Then there's the living stones on top. The foundation is Christ, and you and I are laid in there with all our inconsistencies and all our weaknesses and protrusions and gaps. Jesus lays us together in a way that fits. We contribute to the strength of the wall by our commitment one to another. Now, do you see yourself in these pictures? How's it working for you in these pictures? Are you experiencing brotherhood like it lays out here, both in the receiving and the giving? And by the way, Gerald and Leon and Rich, where's the preacher in this, these pictures? Where is he? Where's the leader? Christ is the vine, Christ is the head, and Christ is the cornerstone. And I believe we are built into this picture of the grapevine as another branch on the vine, another member in the body, another stone in the wall. And we, along with all the rest, contribute to the building of this kingdom. One ingredient makes these pictures possible, and that is unity. A rock pile is not a building. A pile of severed branches is not a is not a good thing. Body parts are not a church. And if we don't have unity, we don't have a church. I'd like to talk about that for the rest of our time. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Paul said, you've become behind in no gift. There's all evidence of grace in your church. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And it would be interesting to bring a couple of you up front this morning, make you stand here, and just so just everybody can look at you, the diversity that's in this church. There's uh, quite a variety from farmers to loggers to professionals to computer whizzes to whatever you are, mechanics, different backgrounds, different economic levels, different houses, different vehicles, different ways of doing things. And if you look at these people up here, these four people, you can think of your whole congregation, how to get all of us inside this verse. Uh, speak the same thing, no divisions among you, perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment. Now some people would come at this differently. Some people would say that if we want that kind of unity in our church, let's, let's make ourselves the same. Let's make all the guys dress up in black pants, white shirt, black shoes, and uh, make them look the same. Let's make them all drive a 1997 green Astro van. That'll put them on the same level. Let's cap their herd size. Let's cap their salaries. Let's, uh, let's make them the same. But the next men's meeting, they're still individuals. And they're still thinking differently. And if that's all there is to unity... It's like dry laying blocks and then stuccoing the outside. It looks beautiful, but if there's not an inner unity, we have, we have a brittle uh, problem on our hands. Or we could just ignore each other. Uh, Delvin doesn't care about Rich. Rich doesn't care about Irvin. Irvin doesn't care about Ivan. And uh, all week we live our own lives and do our own thing and do what we want, and if they're not living right, it was not my problem. If they have an issue in their life, we'll let them take care of it. And the only unity between people like that is what they do in church on Sunday morning. We'll come to church, you can sing tenor, and I'll sing bass, and we'll have a message, and we'll say, what a great message. And we'll all go home and ignore each other for the rest of the week. And that's a story of a lot of congregations. Uh, there's not a commitment, there's not unity, not a sense of responsibility. We need something deeper than that. We can turn all of our hearts in the same direction, give us the same spirit, give us the same word, same concern, same humility. And only with that inner attitude change and the inner commitment to the word of God and the commitment to a brotherhood can we become a functioning body that works and be joined as, as this verse says. I'd like to take you to John 17, this beautiful prayer that Jesus prayed. Jesus was soon to leave his disciples. And he knew the rifts that were among them. He knew there was a Peter and he knew there were some sons of Zebedee and some 
Sons of Thunder and some uh, ex-tax collectors, and he knew the fragility of that relationship. And he heard their arguments about greatness and knew how quickly things could fall apart. In his last prayer, he prayed this for them. In John 17, verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I am come to thee. I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And down in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Verse 23, I and them, and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed, he prayed this. He could have prayed for their protection, their, uh, well, whatever. But he prayed for unity. They might be one. He set a high standard here. He said, as you, Lord, and me are one, let them be one like that. That's a high standard. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Father worked on behalf of the Son, and the Son worked to glorify the Father. How can that be worked out in our church life? Uh, Can we have something of the same appreciation, one for another? Emphasizing and affirming the good we see in other people? so easy to criticize the wrong, but can we at least understand the grace of God in that person's life? Can we submit to each other the way Jesus submitted to His Father in honor preferring? When it's possible, let's do it your way. When it's possible, we'll honor other people's preferences. And we'll seek that sense of unity that Jesus had with His Father. There's a means of unity. We already talked about this, what Christ did when He came reconciliation running in both directions. And there's a reason for the oneness. Jesus says this, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me. Uh, If you ever have wondered if unity is worth the effort, consider this, that the greatest impact and the greatest testimony that we as a church could have on the world is showing them what the body of Christ looks like as it works together. Jesus said that here, that the world could know that The Father sent the Son. I want this for you. Brotherhood unity is a testimony of the power of God. See, the world longs for peace and unity and nobody out there would call for disunity. But they're not quite sure how to get it. And the world needs to see it work. And they see in the church this claim that the presence of Jesus brings peace and harmony and unity. And then they see that marriages don't work. Church life doesn't work. Uh, it's, it's not a pretty picture. And I don't believe there's any testimony so drawing as people that know how to work together in unity. Back in Ecuador, you read the story about Nate Saint. And uh, he was killed by the Aka Indians. What I learned later, the rest of the story was that the, the widow went back there to serve among these people, these savages, whatever they were. And uh, they were converted and they came to the Lord. And she was working now among this Christian church that was established there. And the thing that struck me the most was that one of the very men that had killed her husband baptized her son. Can you imagine a picture like that? Being baptized by the murderer of my father. How can that work? It can only work in the church when Jesus Christ is there. Down in Nicaragua, I don't know if it's still true or the last I heard it was, there was a man called the butcher. And the butcher would go around the night and kill somebody's cow and butcher it on the spot and be around town the next day selling meat. And uh, Pablo Yoder, he was probably here before, but he was a victim of that a number of times. But the butcher became a believer and the butcher became a church member and the butcher became a brother to Pablo. And now you have... Pablo and the butcher in the same congregation. In that congregation, you have ex-Sandinistas and ex-Contras washing feet together after that bitter civil war and struggle in, in Nicaragua. And the world would look at that and say, it's impossible. Uh, but it isn't. 
Because this is what Jesus came to do. And Ephesians 3.10 says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And uh, the angels know what broken relationships look like. And now they're seeing what healed relationships look like. And that's a testimony of the power of God. Unity is something we seek on purpose. This requires some substance. If you go to uh, Ephesians 4, it won't take time to read through that. But true unity is not based on just getting along. It's based on something more solid than that. We need to keep that in mind. Everybody promotes getting along, and if there's going to be a world religion, it's probably going to be based on tolerance. Uh, I don't care what you do, and you don't care what I do, to just leave each other alone and accept each other the way we are. And it's probably the next thing in persecution is going to be based on this, that because we set boundaries of right and wrong, we're going to be intolerant. And it could provide some backlash. Some people are already feeling that. But as important as unity is, I believe issues of truth are more important still. And we need to keep that foundation. Uh, But too often, the separations come not through issues, but through preferences and through personal clashes and through personal struggles with other people. And uh, this morning I'd like to lay out a few practical things yet, uh, how this looks in practice. This is, this is where the hard work starts. Even when we agree, agree on a foundation for truth, often relationships struggle from something else. Often this misunderstanding and disunity starts with a cycle of a cycle of misunderstanding or some kind of offense. It might start with anything. It might start between two individuals. It might start with two factions or two families. When you prefer it one way, and I prefer it a different way, uh, there's a little bit of a tension there until we get this thing resolved. Uh, Maybe it's a church color. Maybe it's the church service. Time is going to start. Or maybe it's a misunderstanding of your intention. You did something, and I saw what you did, and I sort of make up a reason for why you probably did it. And this, this is how these things start. Maybe I heard something about you. And it wasn't quite the whole story. And uh, maybe it was a story with a bit of a spin on it. And so I got the information that way. How do I respond when I see something that concerns me? Our carnal response is to back up a little bit. And say, now just a minute. I thought this brother was a good brother. I thought he knew better. What do you think about this? I I heard about this person. Do you think, uh, let's see what he thinks. And we talk about this thing. And and when this brother, whatever happened, senses this attitude coming from my life, what does he do? Well, then he backs up. He thinks, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. There's some vibes coming that just aren't quite the same. There's some things there that make me feel awkward. And uh, it's hard to trust someone you feel suspicious about. And these things start swirling. And uh, unless this cycle is broken, we turn this into a, uh, a bigger problem. Did you ever notice that how we feel about someone affects how I respond to them? If I already have a deep-rooted suspicion of a person... And they do something or say something that fits my narrative and it seems to fit with the way I already think about them. Uh, It just goes on the account. It just gets chalked up as another piece of evidence that that's the way he is. Uh, Somebody gave this little example I found humorous, but I've been served good food all week, good coffee all week, but what if I would be sitting there at supper and the host would bring me a cup of coffee and trip and spill this thing all over my clothes, my Sunday clothes? Uh, how I respond to that is based largely on how I already feel in my heart about that person. If I'm already feeling a bit distrustful, I'll say, you know, they probably did that on purpose. They, uh, he just wanted to mess up my Sunday clothes before church. She probably practiced to make sure she did it just right. And uh, look what she did. But if we're friends and we get along and we have a good relationship, oh, no problem. Uh, 
It wasn't that hurt, hot. I, it didn't really hurt. I, I sort of like coffee in my lap. It uh, doesn't bother me at all. Uh, how we respond has a large... Well, how we feel about the person has a large bearing on how we respond to them as a person. And these things are based on certain attitudes. Often the feeling that I deserve better from you than I've got. Uh, unwilling to admit faults. And this, this thing feeds on itself. Have you ever found yourself in a tense relationship this thing can go around and around and around. And uh, feeding this feeling of hurt and tension and mistrust. And this wall that was supposedly done away with in Christ is now back and healthy and growing if it's not taken care of. And that's where the hard work begins. People in this whirlpool often don't realize that there's something larger going on than just between you and me. I believe that disunity is an open door for Satan's agenda. Because uh, he loves it. He's, he sows it. He, it's one of the things that God hates and he loves. But this cycle of mistrust and reproach and offense can be broken by a person who's willing to step in and do it. Uh, who's supposed to make the first move? The one that was offended or the one that did the offending? Well, I'm thankful that Scripture provides a recourse for both because often, if we have hurt feelings going on, I feel just as offended as you do. And I've, it's been interesting to work with people that are, have an issue with each other. You talk to one, and then you talk to the other. They're both feeling the same way about the other person. Uh, I don't understand. They're, they're doing this, and I just don't understand it. And then you flip it around, they feel the same way. But Matthew 18, verse 15 says this, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. So if brother A feels misunderstood and accused, and he sees clearly this man is at wrong, is at fault, he doesn't have to sit there and stew and wait until the other person makes the first move. He can take the initiative and go even if he does not see himself in the wrong. Ask for clarification. Ask for some communication. Search your own heart. Make sure you're humble and broken. You're not going to to throw stones, you're going to heal something. And this person that has done the wrong may never repent. He may say, no, you just misread me, there's nothing at all, and there's no issues at all, I'm feeling just fine. Sometimes people respond that way. And you go away feeling, well, uh, maybe I was wrong, or maybe he's not being honest. But I believe that this is designed so that the one that felt offended can be free even if the other person does not repent. If I've gone and I've done my part and I've tried to seek reconciliation, he does not see it. I don't have to go under the burden of that all my life. I can walk away and be free even if he never sees his problem. At least for myself. But Matthew 5.23 flips it around. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there remembers that thy brother hath ought against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Now, if you know that you've offended someone and you know that someone else is having uh, a struggle and a troubled mind because of you, that should make us not sleep very well at night to know that I've offended someone they're offended because of me. And Jesus calls us here to go and deal with it. If you're called to lead songs on Sunday morning, remember somebody has something against you. Let church start five minutes late and go take care of it. If, uh, if you are called to serve the Lord, don't do it with an outstanding problem. Get it taken care of. And then come and serve. Now perhaps you feel just as offended as the other person, as often we do. What we can do is at least go and acknowledge our part. Maybe I'm just responsible for 25%. We could at least go and say, I think I've been responsible for at least part of this issue. Would you please forgive whatever part I may have contributed to this problem? I don't think the offender can be freed before God until he does what he's called to do. And this healing process is set up so either side can initiate it. Uh, the offended and the offender can come and ideally they'll both drop what they're doing and meet halfway. We love to see it work that way. Either side can be free without the cooperation of the other side. I believe it's designed that way. But true unity can never happen until both do their part. I may confess, but if you don't forgive, 
there's still going to be a broken unity there. I may forgive, but if there's still wrong on your side, I might be free, but we might not be the same level of unity as before. We need to work on these things. I'm thankful for the towel that Jesus gave us in in John 13. Very useful tool there in brotherhood. I want you to call your attention to one thing before we close here. Did you ever notice the things that Jesus knew before He took the towel? It says there in John 13, He knew that He came from God, and He knew that He was going to God, and then He picked up the towel and washed His disciples' feet. And Jesus was serving His brethren out of a position of complete security and complete rest. He knew where He was coming from, He knew where He was going, and there was out of that security, He knelt and did something very, very humble. And it seems to me that uh, insecurity breeds something totally different than unity. Insecurity breeds attempts to uh, make myself secure, come out on top, make sure that I don't come out looking bad or having control over things. If you give a towel to an insecure person, it's going to make him feel all the more insecure because it just underscores his feeling of inferiority. Jesus was secure in his belonging, his position. And he had nothing to prove, nothing to hold to except serve the Lord in the way he had called him. And he was able to take that towel and kneel down because he had nothing to lose through it and wash his disciples' feet. And then Jesus said, as I have done, do it that way. The towel is a restorative attitude. You see a person overtaken in a fault, take a towel and go. A towel is a peacemaking attitude. There's two people at odds. Take a towel and go. You don't have anything to lose. It's a servant attitude. The towel attitude says there's no one beneath my dignity. There's no service of the Lord too small and too humble. I can do it for the cause of Christ. And if we want a brotherhood that works, the towel is the best tool to soften hearts and to break resistance. And... uh, It can heal relationships in ways that nothing else can. We're not too important. We're not too big. We're not above our Lord. Probably one of the greatest sins in our churches today is our willingness to part ways over small issues and uh, personal clashes. That was not the model in the early church. Jesus said in Acts, or no, it was written of the disciples in Acts 4.32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. When there's one heart and one soul, that's a glowing testimony of what Jesus is doing in the midst. Often, brotherhood rift is not caused by a gigantic chasm. Often it's caused by a series of small cracks among the brotherhood. Whose responsibility is it? Who's going to weld them up? Who's going to heal them? Who's going to make an effort to make it happen? That's the responsibility of everyone as part of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for our churches. Thank you for what you've done. And uh, hard things have been worked through and great things have been done. Bring us to maturity, Lord. Help us to continue to grow in unity and purpose and love one for another and for You. Help us to see clearly there's something that I could do as a person for a greater contribution to the unity and beauty of the body of Christ. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at our relationship with the church and the brotherhood, I wonder what stood out to you. And it's easy to say, well, I wish so-and-so would do something different, but let's start at home. I'd like to give you a brief opportunity to respond. If there's, if there's one thing that you have seen has been deficient in your life and you're committing to do it, or one relationship that you've seen has been broken and you're willing to invest in fixing it, one thing you think you could do better to contribute to the beauty of the body of Christ I invite you to stand to to commit to that. Uh, 
Is there a song to sing to close this service? I'm not sure who's our chorister. Where is he at? Okay. Why don't you lead us in a verse of song, and as we think, and as we meditate, if there's something we're committing ourselves to do in specific, I invite you to stand and show that to the rest of the group. Let's sing. <laughs>